I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 75 of Talking Golf History, the rise and demise of Spalding Golf. As you are about to learn, Spalding Golf in particular played a pivotal role, and dare I say perhaps the most important role, in the history of golf in America, in growing a fledgling game into the sport that we all know and love today. It brought mass production to golf equipment manufacturing. It brought Varden to America. It built hundreds of golf courses. It wooed Bobby Jones into the golf club making business. It helped popularize the transition to steel, match sets, and it evolved golf clubs and the golf ball. This show marks the first of a series that I am calling The Rise and Demise. Each new episode will cover a golf manufacturer who went from the very top of the game to a footnote in golf history. We are joined today by my golf spy's John Barba, who will share the history of Spalding and many companies to come. Let's start our show. It's my pleasure to welcome my golf spy's very own John Barba. To talking golf history, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's it's really it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I've been listening to your podcast over the past few weeks and turning into a really big fan. Those things. Oh, thank you so much. You know, before we dive into the rise and demise of Spalding Golf, for those of us who are unaware of my golf spy, please educate our audience on who they are and what they do. Well, mygolfspy.com is a website, and it is a, a golf blog focusing on golf equipment. Uh, it was started. 2009, 2010, uh, as, just, as uh, the owner, Adam Beach, really wanted to change the way the golf industry is viewed from an equipment standpoint to kind of get past the marketing and into the truth. So developed a pretty extensive club testing protocol. Uh, and now our club testing most wanted has kind of become an industry standard uh, where we take marketing out of it and just look at performance. Um, and we cover the golf industry from an equipment side and from, you know, other areas of interest side, whether it's travel, whether it's golf courses, whether it's history's mysteries, which is uh, kind of a, uh, a little side, uh, side project I've taken on over the past uh, several months to kind of combine some of my passions, which is history and golf and, uh, you know, the connecting dots and seeing how things actually happen. Uh, golf Spy right now is uh, pretty big. Uh, they're going to hit about we're going to hit about 19 million unique eyeballs this year. Wow, that's amazing uh, worldwide, which is which is crazy. So we've got a great blog, uh, mygolfspy.com. We also have a forum, a member forum, where it's kind of a chat room for golf, and that's how I got involved with, with uh, my golf spy to begin with this uh, forum member. Uh, and then they found out I could write, and they offered me. A job, so <laughs> I love uh, it. I do, I do that. I do that part time. It's kind of a hobby. So yeah, I love it. I I tell you. I find my golf spy fascinating. And, and what I really love is when you do the equipment and apparel like dives into best in class. And so like, for instance, um, I, I think it was the last year, maybe it was two years ago, 
I was looking for new rain gear. And rain gear, unlike, you know, going out and, you know, to a fitter and hitting 15 different brands, no one lets you just put on rain gear and stand out in a storm (laughs) and see how well it goes. And here you can go onto my golf spy, you can search for some of the testing that you've done. And I found it to be amazing. And there are brands on there that you've never heard of Mm -hmm. that you can learn about without necessarily having to fall into it and, or your local golf shop doesn't carry it. It's a way to really expand your knowledge into equipment, apparel, and almost everything else. Sure. And things like that, the small companies you may have never heard of, but they can make very, very good equipment. Uh, and uh, it's kind of levels the playing field because the big companies have all the money. The little companies might have some really good ideas. And what one of the things that my golf spy can do is help level the playing field a little bit and expose you to things that may work out to be really, really good products for you that you may otherwise not have heard of. And, and give me, help me if I'm wrong here, but you use like real golfers to test out this equipment. So it's not like biased by, you know, it's the longest ball in golf or, you know, you'll hit it straighter than ever. It's real people. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. It's just regular golfers. Uh, the, the main headquarters is located in Yorktown, Virginia, and they, we have a test center there and people come in, local golfers come in from all handicaps, all swing speeds, all skill levels, and they'll be part of, let's say, our most wanted driver test. And over the course of a, of a couple of months, they'll come in a few times a week. Each guy, I think it's 35, up to 35 different individual testers will come in and they'll hit a bunch of shots with different drivers and they'll rotate them and they'll leave and they'll come leave before they get tired. They'll come back again another day, hit, hit a bunch more shots and they just compile and crunch the data to figure out which uh, performs best for different for different types of golfers, different groups of golfers. And that's one of the cool things about it too, right? It's not just you know, me, the single digit handicapper, it's the guy who's a 30 handicapper and saying, Hey, Mm -hmm. listen, maybe you should look at these three drivers a little bit more than these that are getting all the press, because this might suit your game better. Exactly, exactly. And you'll find that uh, you might find a a performing a club that performs really well that comes from a direct to consumer company like sub 70, that maybe you never heard of, that performs really, really well compared to the rest of the field. And it comes in at a great value as well, at a good price that you may never have considered. And then you can wind up getting something at a good price, at a good value that's uh, it's going to perform really well for you. I have I have one in here somewhere. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so, John, we were talking before I started recording uh, that you're actually, by trade, a plumber. How Walk me through that story. How do you go from... You know, plumber in trade to being a my golf spy correspondent, if you will. Well, it's a it's a pretty typical career path. I think most people would have followed something similar. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Actually, I, I I I'm a plumber by birth. My dad was uh, head of plumbing and heating business in Massachusetts, and uh, by the time I could walk, he had me fetching wrenches, and uh, you know, doing work for him. And when I was a teenager, and we'd get particularly mouthy. I'd spend my vacation time uh, from school digging ditches in the cold and doing all the all the all. He had a way of keeping me in line, um, and and then that was kind of one career path. Um, then very logically, I went into journalism in college. <laughs> I got a, I have a journalism degree. I worked as a, a disc jockey for a while, and then in, I was in radio news for quite a while, which is where I learned to write. I worked for uh, WEEI in Boston when it was a news radio station, and we would just write news from five in the morning through noon. It was just nonstop. Uh, From there, I went back into plumbing, (laughs) because who wouldn't, right? Uh, 
and then uh, eventually uh, went to go work as in in uh, technical sales and training. And right now I work my day job as a trainer for a company called Taco out of Rhode Island, and we are the world's second largest manufacturer of circulating pumps. So I do training for them. Basically, I talk for a living. All right. Yeah, that's, yeah. So this right. suits you well, right? Of, of course, that's one of my few marketable skills. <laughs> and then, how did you get involved with my golf spy? Well, um, I st- it was 2010, and um, my wife got me a se- got me a little v- uh, Christmas voucher for a new set of golf clubs and some lessons because I'd recently picked up the game again. I stopped when when the kids were little, stopped playing altogether. Got a new job. They played a lot of golf in the job, so I decided to get back into golf. And she said, "Go get, go get some new clubs, uh, and get some lessons." And I, being being kind of uh, you know OCD a little bit, I spent uh, an inordinate amount of time researching golf clubs and stumbled upon my golf spy, who had just started out, and they they had some really really interesting articles and tests on on different clubs. From there. Um, I joined the forum and from there I wound up winning, a, winning, uh, being selected to go with, uh, Tony Covey, who was the, is our editor and chief writer going to Nike golf headquarters in oh, wow. uh, Fort Worth for the vapor, uh, launch, uh, event. Uh, and I figured since I'm there, I might as well write up something in the forum. So I, I had a notebook and was taking notes like a madman, you know, and Tony's looking at me, he goes, what, what the heck are you doing? You know, <laughs> um, but I wrote that I wrote up a long piece, uh, detailed piece for the uh, for the forum on that. They kind of liked it. They published it in the blog and said, you seem to be able to put a sentence together in a somewhat logical manner. Would you like to write for us? And I said, sure. And they said, we well, can't pay you. <laughs> uh, but even uh, better, yeah, even better. <laughs> have some fun. And again, for me, it was a hobby. Absolutely. It was a hobby job. And it's turned into, you know, something that I really love to do. And, and uh, you know, Adam and uh, Tony. And uh, the rest of the gang there, Harry and Miranda, have given me a lot of opportunities to write some stuff, which I'm grateful for. Having a ball. Yeah. And that's that's where we how we came together, right? Um, yes, yes. This interview stems from an article you wrote for My Golf Spy, and it really struck a chord for me. Oddly enough, I was already planning to dive into the golf history giants of old and how they dominated the game. Names like Robert Forgan, Tom Stewart, George Nicole, then, of course, McGregor, and our topic today, Spalding. Uh, these giants, for those of you who don't know, were as big as Titleist, Callaway, TaylorMade, and Ping today, and yet they died off. Today, we're diving into Spalding. Now, the story of A.G. Spalding and Brothers is not too different from the beginning of Willie Parkinson's. Both founders were professional athletes. John, can you share the history of Albert Spalding? How did, how did this come about? Well, Albert was a baseball player, uh, as, as we know. He's, a, he's in the Hall of Fame uh, in Cooperstown. Uh, and he started out like many baseball players as a child. And <laughs> um, he was uh, he, he grew up in Rockford, Illinois. And oh, really? My wife's from yeah. Rockford. That is a small yeah. world. There you go. He grew up in Rockford, Illinois. Um, he threw, played for the town team there. There, there were no organized professional leagues like we know now, but they, they, they played regionally. Uh, 1869 was the very first organized professional team, the Cincinnati Red Stockings. Uh, and who eventually became the Cincinnati Reds. They were the very first professional team. They went barnstorming and play other teams. I'm certain at some point they must have played Rockford. Star player for Cincinnati was a guy named George Wright, uh, a shortstop whom we shall get to know better. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, 
Fast forward a couple of years, not entirely sure what happened in between 1869 and 1871, but in 1871, a new league was formed called the National Association of Professional Baseball Players. Kind of rough, disorganized, but they had teams in different cities. George Wright and his brother Harry went to the Boston Red Stockings. And at some point, they must have met up with Albert and saw that the kid could pitch. Albert went with them. And that's how he and George Wright got together. So from 1871 to 1875, Albert is the star pitcher for the Boston Red Stockings. Now, a lot of people think Boston Red Stockings, Boston Red Sox. That's not how it worked. This was that the, they eventually actually the, the Red Stockings eventually morphed into the Boston Bean Eaters, the Boston Nationals, ultimately the Boston Braves. Interesting. It's not the Red Sox. Huh? Right. I would have I would have made that conclusion as well. As would have I, <laughs> the things you learn, you know, when you look into stuff. Uh, then the Red, the Braves, the Boston Braves became the Milwaukee Braves and then became the Atlanta Braves and now our current World Series champion. So just weird connections. Uh, early 1870, 1871, 1875, the Red Stockings are like the cream of the crop of the league. They win four out of the five championships. The league itself was kind of corrupt. At least that's what the, those are the messages we heard uh, or that we read. They were kind of corrupt, a lot of gambling, very loosely organized. And, you know, players were free agents after every season. So what tied a player to a team kind of got a little shady. Um, During that time, the owner of the Chicago White Stockings, who again, you'd think would become the Chicago White Sox, but no, they became the Chicago Cubs. It had enough of the red stockings being the cream of the crop and dominating the league. He decided, well, you know, forget you. I'm going to start a new league. Okay. I'm taking my ball and go home, basically. I'm going to start my own league. And he started what became the National League, what we know today as the National League. And that started in 1876. Uh, He had uh, knew Albert from from being a Chicago Midwest guy. Um, And the, the white stockings were in the league as well. He kind of persuaded Albert to leave Boston, come to Chicago, and oh, by the way, grab three or four of their best players and come and come on along. I'll give you part ownership and I'll make you a manager as well as star pitcher. Wow. Worked out well for Albert. Now, this is where it gets interesting. <laughs> While he's in Boston, he's playing with George Wright. George Wright was a super duper star, right? absolute super duper star, and he is the first athlete that we know of that started his own sporting goods company. Really? I didn't know Wright was before Spalding. 1871, he started the George Wright Cigar, Tobacco, and Baseball Products Company. All of that makes sense to me. In 1871. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Why not? Why not? 1871. So he's doing things like making baseballs, making uniforms and selling them to his team and to all the other teams in New England, working on baseball bats, things like that. Um, even starting with baseball gloves. Now, in the 18, early 1870s, Albert Spaulding goes on record as saying, hey, I'm not wearing a baseball glove. Most players didn't, but I'm not wearing a baseball glove. The only baseball players that wear gloves are the wimpy baseball players. They're playing I'm without gloves? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. Oh, yeah. It was 1871. Who knew, right? Yeah. Um, 1876, Albert goes to Chicago. He is involved in starting the league, writing the league bylaws, and he's also in the process of starting Spalding, A.G. Spalding and brother sporting goods. 
Well, he writes into the bylaws of the league that the only balls that you can use are the Spalding baseballs. Wow. Back when you could do that. (laughs) Right. And in 1876, Albert also starts wearing a baseball glove. Made by... Made by Spalding. Yes. Self-advertising. Love it. Albert's an interesting dude. He's very smart. He may not be the most original thinker in the world, but he had a, a real eye for promotion. A lot of the ideas were his, but an awful lot of his ideas he kind of picked up along the way and, and borrowed them. You know, for example, 1874, he, the, the, the Red Stockings and the Philadelphia team from the National Association go to England to play to barnstorm and play, play, play baseball and show baseball to, uh, to, uh, to, the, to the people in England. Well, star player for the uh, Philadelphia Athletics was a guy named A.J. Reach. Someone else will get to know better in a little bit. And, and Reach, has, or Reach was from London. Uh, at the time, a lot of the people in London were saying, hey, this is just like rounders or this is just like cricket. And that kind of bothered Spalding because he wanted it, be, wanted it to be an American game. Albert deals with that little problem a little bit later on as well. That's crazy. So Albert fi- basically founds A.G. Spalding and Brothers. So was it an instant success? I mean, was the success ordained because basically everybody in the league was going to be using Spalding no matter what? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Albert started with his brother, Walter. Uh, Walter was a banker, actually, and and Albert kind of convinced him, hey, leave this lucrative banking career behind. Come join me in in in, in the sporting goods business in Chicago. Together, they, they had about 800 bucks to start the company, which in 2021 dollars is about 11,000 bucks. Yeah. Good, not, uh, good that, money, but not crazy money. Right. But that first year, they had sales that totaled about $11,000, which is a quarter of a million in, in $2021. So, yeah, they pretty much had it. They, they had a, a, a captive market with, uh, you know, selling uniforms, uh, gloves, um, you know, bats. They had a big, they, actually, they're credited with developing the first modern baseball bat that had the thin handle and the, you know, wider up at the barrel. Uh, to the point where they actually had a, they wound up starting a factory in Michigan. They were making a million baseball bats a year by the end of the century. Yeah, and so they they yeah they were pretty much an instant success. They 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 took you know, pardon the pun they took the ball and ran with it. Um, at the same time, so is George Wright in Boston. He's his company is morphing into uh, an all around sporting goods uh, company. Uh, eventually called Wright and Ditson. Ditson, a guy named Henry Ditson, started out as a clerk, and he worked his way up to being a partner, and became Wright, and it became Wright and Ditson. Now, Wright and Ditson doing a lot of the same stuff, developing new products. They they had a patent on a catcher's mask that uh, Spalding copied, and actually they went to court, and, and yeah, Wright took Spalding to court for uh, uh, copyright infringement or patent infringement, and uh, and won. Um, but they're but again they're still like friendly competitors, all right, and it which eventually led into Spalding acquiring not only Wright and Ditson in 1892, but the AJ Reach Company, our old friend from Philadelphia. He started his own sporting goods company as well, focusing on baseball. But he also had a publishing company, which is interesting because that kind of brought off the uh, that kind of kicked off the Spalding Athletic Library. That's right. So walk that walk us through that Spalding getting into the golf business. It was really through acquisition, no. Sort of, kind of, sort of, kind of. Wright and Ditson, George Wright was, uh, George Wright plays a bigger role in golf than I think any of us really appreciate. Um, In that 
he brought he may very well have brought the first golf equipment into the U.S. in 1886, a little before, uh, you know, uh, St. Andrews and Yonkers opened and before the USGA got started and all that. But they didn't know what it was for. He put it in the storefront and some guy from Scotland was walking by and he notices these he notices the golf clubs inside and he walks in and asks about them and they say well hey, you seem to know what this is all about what is this game and he had to explain it to the to the guys who write Didson. um george being a sportsman um he played all sports he kind of took that to heart he kind of started playing around with these clubs but there was really no place to play for regular folks you know there was the country club was getting started in brookline but uh interesting story in 1890 Wright and three of his buddies go to Franklin Park, which was the new park that was being built by Frederick Olmsted uh, in Boston. They go to Franklin Park and totally illegally on their own, they start carving out a seven hole golf course all on their own. What year is this? 1890, this public park. And uh, they decided to start playing a little bit of golf. And they were going along just fine until a beat cop walked up and basically says, what the hell are you guys doing? You know, he says, we're playing golf. He says, well, you got a permit for that? Well, no. He says, well, get out of here. You know, beat it until you get a permit. Um, right sensing an opportunity, went to get a, an official permit to play golf. Uh, he got Frederick Olmsted involved, who wanted to see what was going on. So in December of 1890, Wright and his three buddies played, you know, they finished building a nine-hole course, and they played the first 18 holes on a municipal golf course in U.S. history. That's so cool. December 10th, 1890. What'd they shoot? A lot. That's a, <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> a couple double bogeys here and there. I'm sure, right? But I'm sure. A sandbag or two, so, you know. <laughs> um, and then, ultimately, eventually, uh, the city decided to build the Franklin Park Golf Course, which still exists today, which was the first official municipal golf course in, in, in the U.S. Based on the, basically, on the back of George Wright's round in the 1890s, early 1890s. Right, in 1890. Now, Spalding buys Wright and Ditson and A.J. Reach in 1892. Still no official Spalding golf equipment. But about that year, 1892, 1893, a guy named Julian Curtis, who was the sales manager for Spalding, takes a trip to England. And uh, he's walking around and he sees a sporting goods store. Well, being in the business, let's go take a look. And he sees in the window golf clubs. To him, they looked like these sticks with this funky little iron head. He didn't know what the heck they were for. Went in and asked, was intrigued, totally unauthorized, spent about four or 500 bucks buying a bunch of stuff and shipping it back home. Went back to the board of directors, explained it. They said, yeah, no. <laughs> and by the way, who, where you get off spending 400 bucks of our money without telling us, you know? Uh, they were less than enthused, but decided to look into it, see, dip their toe and see what happens. Wright and Ditson is doing pretty well at this point with golf equipment, so they're watching and seeing. And it isn't until like 1894, 1895, where they actually start marketing their own Spalding-branded golf clubs. They're made in the UK. They had a factory. They wound up getting a factory. These things move fast. They get a factory in Fife and a factory in London to make balls and, uh, balls and clubs. So they're selling them over there, and they're selling them over here as well. 1896 is the first time it appears in the Spalding General Sporting Goods catalog for golf equipment. Uh, they were in, they were they were working with uh, Silver the Silvertown Company in the UK for golf balls as well, uh, and they, they got a purchase. And um, uh, actually, they uh, it, just another tie into another story I wrote about Penfold Golf. Albert Penfold 
worked for the Silvertown company, and he developed a way to make a gutta percha ball that was actually white and stayed white instead of the instead of painting gray. it. Yeah, yeah, instead of the dull gray they had before that you couldn't find. So just these things tie together like crazy. So, uh, but 1896 was about the time they really started in selling golf equipment in in North America. And that's also it's it runs parallel with golf courses starting to pop up all mm-hmm. over the Northeast. Uh, there's golf in Chicago, obviously, with Chicago Golf Club. And it's kind of a, a slow boom at first. And something happens in 1900 that is directly attributed to Spalding. Uh, can you share the story of Varden's American invasion, how that came about, and what role Spalding played in that? Well, that, that's another interesting story. Uh, when I first read about it, it was Albert Spalding. But the more you dig into it, Albert had kind of retired from Spalding Sporting Goods in the late 1800s, late 1890s. His brother, Walter, was, was, was kind of a driving force, and George Wright was very involved. So actually, Walter and George Wright were the real people behind the Varden tour. Um, Albert being the promotional guy, they all knew that, hey, tying well-known athletes to products was going to help move stuff. Kind of like we don't today, right? Um, like Reggie Bar. You, you're old enough to remember the Reggie Yeah, Bar, Absolutely. Right? There you go. Um, so they worked out a deal with uh, to to boost interest in golf in the U.S. with Harry Varden. Harry Varden spent the night the year nineteen hundred touring the United States, doing exhibition matches. And depending upon where you read, he played either ninety matches and lost one, eighty matches and lost two, or sixty sixty five matches and lost thirteen. I, I, I got yeah. He only he only lost one match in the United States to a single player. And his name was George Nicole. He mm-hmm. lost it, I think, a week after um, he came to the, you know over by boat. And George was a good player. He wasn't an amazing player and caught Varden, some think, sleeping. Varden actually challenged him to, to for $1,000 for a rematch because he was so <laughs> upset about it. And I believe they played in Florida, and George beat him again. He was the only man in America that beat Harry Varden one-on-one. Now, all those other matches that he lost – what they would do, it would be two pros playing their best ball against Varden. And most of those matches where he was blowing people up was like the two best pros in the area playing against Varden's one ball. And I think you're right. I think he lost 10 out of like 80 matches. Yeah. It was really an amazing you know, tour de force. And it was very lucrative for Varden too. He was paid about, uh, I think it was like $250 a match, which wound up, being $6,500 in today's money. He came killing about a half million bucks. Yeah, I mean, this is a time when you win the, won the Open and you're making less than 100 pounds. So that exactly. was real money. It was, it was serious money. And in addition, Spalding came out with the Varden Flyer golf ball. Uh, it was a gutta percha ball. Uh, actually never really sold well because that was about the same time as the Haskell ball. Yeah, that's the so killer of the whole thing. If, if you find a Varden Flyer, it's worth good money because they didn't play them for very long. Right, right. So, so... You know, he that whole year of 1900, he's crisscrossing the U.S. in a Pullman car, about 20,000 miles. Uh, he went back in the middle of the year to go play in the Open and then came back to the U.S., wound up winning the U.S. Open that year. All right. And um, during that time, he spent a lot of time with Walter, a lot of time with Albert, and a lot of time with George Wright. And um, they kind of, through their discussions, they were wondering how to grow the game in the U.S. And Basically, what they determined was the, 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 the one thing holding back the growth of the game of golf isn't interest. It's golf courses. You just don't have enough golf courses. 
We just don't have enough golf courses. So they decided to do something that actually Wright and Ditson had done already a few years earlier, which was to hire someone to be their golf course designer and offer free design services to anyone with the money and the wherewithal and the desire to build a golf course. Anywhere in the United States. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that wound up being Thomas Bendelo. This whole part of Spalding is absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, one could argue, and I think quite strongly, that Varden's tour of the United States pre-Spalding getting to the architecture is probably the most important event in U.S. golf history because it preceded the boom of mm-hmm. golf in America. All of a sudden, nobody really knew who, for instance, Willie Dunn was, who you know, a lot of these players who had already won Fowlis, some people knew him locally, but they didn't realize, you know, this is a U.S. Open champion. All of a sudden, you get, you know, Michael Jordan coming to this country, the Michael Jordan of golf, promoting golf literally from coast to coast, playing the crappiest courses anyone can imagine. Like in Florida, he was playing class courses that were 100% made of sand. <laughs> he didn't get it. I mean, it was like hitting a bunker with an iron on every single shot because we had some golf courses, but they just didn't have any of the elements that we would, I'm sorry, that the United Kingdom, that Scotland would consider, quote unquote, golf. It was right. this game where you're hitting sticks into a hole, sure, but it didn't have the elements of design. It didn't have a lot of times grass. Sometimes they're putting on sandy soil with oil slicked down to make it puttable. Mm. And here comes Harry Varden and, and just blows everything up. And all of a sudden, there's this great demand. And like you said, not enough courses. And so they, I, I, the whole idea of bringing Tom Bendelow, and that blows up Tom Bendelow's career, mm-hmm. right? right? Right. And he goes coast to coast with Spalding. As you said, Wright and Ditson was doing it before with, um, was that Finlay Douglas? Finlay. Was that who was doing yeah. it for him? Uh, uh, Finlay, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just going and building hundreds of courses. And we have this amazing boom that literally can be directly attributed to Spalding Golf. That's so cool. Well, Spal- I mean, that was kind of the, the way they did things anyway for all the sports. you got to remember, Spalding at this time is into everything, not just golf. Golf is a small part of their business. They were making exercise equipment. They were making uh, fencing blades. They were making, you know, sp- they made the first basketball ever made in the U.S., the first football ever made in the U.S., and, you know, making making all of the stuff to go along with it. They, this was a... This was becoming a behemoth. They were making ice skates, gym equipment, you rowing machines, barbells, dumbbells, you name it. They were making all of this stuff. In 1893, they actually wound up buying the Lamb Knitting Machine Company in Chicopee, Mass. They were headquartered in Chicago, uh, but they wound up buying this factory in Chicopee, Mass. And that's how Spalding you know, became connected with Chicopee. Uh, the Lamb Knitting Machine Company made knitting machines, obviously. And less obviously, they made rifles, bicycle wheels, and and egg beaters. Go figure. Right? Yeah, no kidding. But they basically made stuff out of metal. Hey, if you're going to be making catcher's masks, if you're going to be making ice skates, if you're going to be making golf clubs, that's a good factory to have. And the knitting machines, got to believe those had a connection to the uniform business anyway. So they set up shop in Chicopee. Uh, all through this time, they're doing all kinds of promotional stuff. Actually, in the 1880s, Spalding brought... Uh, baseball players on a world tour. Uh, so this Varden thing was a, was not an original idea. It was an original golf idea, but they had done this before to bring, uh, do barnstorming. It's a Hawaii, New Zealand, Australia, Egypt, Italy, France, you know, in the UK to drum up business worldwide, not just for Spalding baseball equipment, but for Spalding. So the model had been proven. Right, right. 
And, um, you know, and Varden, and as a result of this, he became the first international golf superstar. And he inspires, but he inspires, like, you know, he ends up inspiring the likes of Francis We Met, Bobby mm-hmm. Jones, him and Ted Ray on their tours. It's just, I mean, it's a fascinating circle of how this all came about in this country. And it starts, you know, many different ways. But Spalding is this pivotal role that I think few are really understand. Right. And it's, it, again, it's, it, it, they say technology, uh, technology um, creates demand, but so does excitement create demand and exposure creates demand. All of a sudden, this game of golf wasn't just for the super elite rich people at the uh, at, at country clubs. It was becoming, you know, regular folks like us wanted to play. And that's, again, the whole story of the greatest game ever played in Francis Wimette. Um, and again, that 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 scene from the movie where Varden is is doing a demonstration at Jordan Marsh. Absolutely. Store, ab- did happen. We don't know if if little Francis Wimette was there or not, but it makes for a great scene in the movie. Uh, but that's that's again how how the how the game started, and then Bendelow wound up designing about two hundred and fifty courses while working for Spalding, and designed hundreds more. Yeah, think of that impact. That's all done. Like, I mean, it's it's that many courses in about a decade under Spalding. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the proliferation of golf courses that come from that. Now, some will say, probably rightfully so, this is before. Um, I'd say, you know, obviously National Golf Links of America changes the way we look at golf design. And a lot of these are very Victorian style designs that I think people tend to blow up from a architectural interest standpoint. But the fact is those golf courses that he built, those 250 some golf courses spread the game all over the United States. And nobody could have done it quite that fast if you didn't have Douglas on one end and Bendelo on the other basically barnstorming and building courses or laying out courses in, you know, I don't know if it was a day or two days or three days. It wasn't, you know, a month-long process. All right, well, I, I, a lot of the Bendelow courses were criticized for being just overly simple. Yeah. But they that were, was the game then. <laughs> a, that was the game then. But B, who were they built for? They were built for beginners. Yeah. Yeah, they were built for people who just wanted to learn how to play the game. So they couldn't necessarily be overly complicated. Yeah. I th- um, you know, but- to that point, I'll say this. I think Bendelo gets a bad rap. Uh, when he was laying out those golf courses, they for sure were simple. But when you get later on in his career, uh, his design exploits certainly grew with, you know, the appetite for paying for his actual services and spending time on golf courses. Right. I mean, I'll he designed the courses at Medina. Um, you know, one of his, one, I think one of the biggest projects he did while with Spalding was Eastlake in Atlanta, uh, 2000, or 2006, no, ni- uh, 1906, that would be a century before 1906. Um, you know, he, got, he's con- con- contracted to go to Eastlake country club and, and finish that course built that built the next nine. Now we all know who played at Eastlake and we're getting uh, into him too <laughs> here soon, but yes, go. Bobby Jones was at Eastlake before we get into that. Cause that's uh, probably two questions away for me as a club maker and ball maker. Can you share some of Spalding's early innovations? Like what do they do to help change this, the game, move it along, add to, you know, the technology boom that we saw from this new era. A couple of things. I think the biggest thing they did was mass production. They, they kind of perfected uh, or, or brought forward the ability to mass produce good quality golf clubs at, at, at that want to be you can be sold at, at a good price. In the 20s, they actually started the drop forging 
production method where uh, I, prior to that, you know, a club maker had his dies, he had an anvil, he had a hammer and they would, he would, you know, make irons the old fashioned way, stick them in the fire, bang them around a little bit, stick them in again, bang them around a little bit. It was very slow and tedious and no consistency whatsoever. In the 20s, Spalding started to use a mechanical hammer to do all that work automatically. It turned into an assembly line Henry Ford kind of thing. So they could make a boatload of irons quickly, easily, cheaply, and consistently. That was a huge movement forward, I think, in the in the in the in the equipment game. Uh, other stuff they did, 1910, they start they actually had uh, aluminum fairway woods. So metal fairway woods in, in 19, they did the gold medal series. They had lead-faced putters. Nice soft metal for feel. Feel was a big thing throughout all of Spalding's uh, early days. They kept touting feel because I guess that's one thing that sounds good and it's hard to quantify, but you know it. it you know it when you feel it, right? Um, so they did the drop forging in the twenties with the mechanical hammer. They had deep grooves on their irons. That's right. Back in the early, really, really deep grooves with like uh, the. They would be nuts. deemed illegal today. Yes, exactly. Actually, the USGA cut on pretty quick, and they said, "Yeah, no, we're not going to do that." Uh, but they had they had great names like stop them and dead stop, you know, for their for their wedges and the groove. So they did that. Um, the crayon clique was an interesting. Oh, thing. I love the crayon. I, yeah. I love the crayon. Well, this is this was interesting. The crayon, was, it was an iron club with a wood inlay. But part of that patent that James Cran had was um, for something called a spring face. So instead of the wood inlay, there was just a piece of metal, you know, a thin strip of metal. placed over it, And you had basically a hollow cavity back iron. Or a hollow iron, and that gave that springiness to give the ball the life and a little. Yeah, bit it's up. basically like the first or one of the first utility clubs yeah, in the history yeah. of the game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that spring face is something every manufacturer's doing today. Yeah, if you look at anybody's new clubs, new irons, they're talking about a thin face for rebound and flex within USGA guidelines over a wider area. This is something they were doing in, in 1910, I guess, 1915. You know, there's an, another contribution. I think Wright and Ditson probably did this as well, so I don't want to give all credit to Spalding. But, you know, prior to, I don't know if you want to call it the Americanization of golf, uh, a lot of club makers just made single clubs. You put together mm-hmm. a set and there wasn't a match set. You'd go out and say, I'm going to get a clique from George Nicole. I'm going to get a mashie and a spade mashie from... Um, uh, Tom Stewart. I'm going to get a wood from Forgan. And Spalding comes in and basically, whether you want to call it the assembly line kind of Ford version of golf club making, builds sets. So all of a sudden, you're not scrambling, you know, from pro shop to pro shop to find one mashie that works in your set. You're <laughs> right. finding a full set of clubs that are basically built for you which I think that's what we do now, right? We don't go out and shop for a, I guess we shop for our wedges separate, but generally speaking, you don't buy a nine iron from one company and a six iron from another and a three iron from another company. So, I, you know. That would be my golf spy thing to do. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Your next article, perhaps, that's right? That's right, that's right. Well, interestingly, I, I, think, I think, again, things, you, you got to connect dots here. Um, back then, there was no limit. The USGA had no limit on how many clubs you could Absolutely. Carry in the bag. So people had 25, 30 clubs in their bag. You know, maybe he's got a left-handed club for that one instance where maybe he's stuck behind a tree. They had all these different clubs. Well, the USGA said, you know what? No, we're going to limit it to 14 is all you get. And that, I think my, that had to be, that had to have spurred the whole idea of, well, if, they, if we only get 14, let's have them all be Spalding. And so let's make a set. 
Yeah, they, some of those stories of uh, some of my favorites, by the way, uh, and I've told the story before, but folks who had, you know, 20, 20 some clubs, 25 clubs in their bag. Uh, Harry Lighthorse Cooper was one of them, obviously. Wal- um, before I get to Walter, I say um, Lawson Little was famous for it. But Walter Hagen's one of my favorites. I told the story a while ago that um, the I've always blamed Lawson Little for the 14 club rule. And I found I, in some research, I realized that the USGA president at Baltus Roll um, in 30, I can't remember what year it was, saw Walter Hagen's uh, bag. And it had like 23 clubs in it. Now, the kicker was Hagen wasn't known for playing 23 clubs, but he had 10 different endorsement deals. <laughs> <laughs> and just so he would be compliant, he would have, he'd have some, you know, uh, Scottish club makers, he'd have some English club makers, he'd have some American, he'd have his own company in there. And it was a mix and match. So if they ever came up, he'd make sure that he made his buck. And I just, I love the fact that that greed. God bless you, Walter Hagen, uh, that it led to why we play 14 clubs today. I just love that. Well, the funny thing is golf to us is a game and, and a pursuit and a competition. we got to remember for a lot of these guys, it's a job. For sure. You know, and that's how they make it. It's how they put food on the table. So, hey, Walter Hagen can have all those all those endorsements. God bless them. You know? Yeah. So in 1930, we're going into one of my heroes here. 1930, Spalding changes the equipment game by signing a 20-year sorry, by signing a 28-year-old golfer who had just retired from the game. Can you share with our audience who I'm referring to and why that was an important signing? That would be a gentleman named Bobby Jones, uh, arguably the most famous athlete of the 20s. Babe Ruth, Jack Dempsey, Bill Tilden, they're all in that conversation. But Bobby Jones, 1930, he just won the Grand Slam, something no one had ever done before, no one had ever heard of before, basically. Um, so he is signed, once he retires, he's signed to uh, uh, an endorsement deal with, with Spalding. But that endorsement deal, it was more than an endorsement deal, it was employment. He wound up becoming a vice president, and because he had that Georgia Tech engineering degree, he was in charge of, uh, of, of development and research and, uh, and, and product development. So he put that he put that all to work and he had he hit the ground running. One of the first things he did, if you ever seen an old Spalding iron, you know, even going into the 60s and 70s on the on the on the sole, it would read Spalding and underneath it says registered. That was something that was something that Jones had come up with Uh, registered irons instead of clubs being made by, you know, on the onesie twosie basis by different club makers. These irons were registered, so they were made by Spalding. Spalding kept records. They registered these clubs, and they kept records of that of that uh, set specs and the, the club, you know, the, the golfer specs. So if something were to happen, like a steel shaft busting or a hickory shaft busting, instead of being completely out of luck, they could go back to Spalding. They had the records on file. They could make an exact duplicate and send it out to him. So that registered thing was, a, was believe it or not, for the time, just a, a great leap forward in, in not necessarily technology, but just, you know, thinking about our business. And that, that came from Bobby Jones. Um, all kinds of other things that he, that he did as well. Um, that picture that I saw you put on Twitter uh, from our article was uh, Bobby Jones. It was 1934. They introduced, he introduced a, a set of irons that were matched but it's like they weren't they weren't one length irons like we think of now yeah staggered they were staggered so the one and two iron had the same length and lie the three and four same length you know their own length and lie and the five and six and so you had instead of 
14 different stances or 13 different stances, you only had, let's say, seven different stances for your sets of clubs. Which and, you know, you know, it's funny you say that because it's often misquoted that Bobby Jones played a same set length like Bryson DeChambeau. You hear that a lot. It's based on that photo. And if you look closely, you're right. They're staggered in twos. Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, and the, 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 the longer irons were more upright because they're a lot easier to, to slice. So if they're, if they're more upright, it's easier, it's easier to not slice them. Although I think I could probably, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then as you get, as the irons get shorter, they, the, 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 the lie angles go get more flat for more control and to keep the ball flight down. Uh, he also did things like started to design clubs with wider flanges, you know, to, which we still use today to keep, uh, to keep from uh, to keep from digging in and hitting shots, keep the back. center weight down. Absolutely, yeah, and, and and a lot of a lot of the, a lot of center of gravity stuff as well. Keep the center of gravity's low in the in the longer irons so they can get up in the air easier. And as the irons get shorter, the center of gravity goes up a little bit. Ball flight comes down for more control. So, you know, so, another thing that I'm gonna I'll add there that I, I I've always found fascinating because I like when I look at history, I love transitional periods. And that original Spalding Bobby Jones set, uh, Robert Tyre Jones Jr. set, to be fair, um, came in both steel and in hickory shafted clubs. And if you have a hickory shafted set of those, they're quite valuable. Now, what happens um, in this transition, there was a, a, a shaft called Pyrotone. And it's one of my favorite things about uh, golf history to talk about this, because I get a lot of people who send me images of clubs they, they find in... Um, you know, antique shops and they say, is this valuable? And then I kind of help them. And I always get these, I get the Bobby Jones clubs and like nine times out of 10, it's a pyrotone shaft that they think is wood. Oh yeah. Because they're painted to look like wooden shafts. Like people, I don't know. I don't think people were embarrassed to use steel shafts, but they were just so used to looking down and seeing that Brown color that initially to transition people from wooden shafts to steel we made steel shafts look like wood and it's i mean i just i just think that's so cool when you think about it. you don't think about making graphite look like steel when this transition we just kind of accepted it but mm-hmm. it was such an early process that when they came out if you find a hickory shafted uh bobby jones spalding set of irons now and here's how you can do it you talk about the registration number if you look at the registration number, if you have any question whether it's pyrotone or steel, the registration number will start with H if it's hickory. So that's a quick photo. Fo- if, if you folks at home are looking through the bins trying to find a steel, uh, those clubs are very valuable. They didn't make a lot of them because we were transitioning into steel. But if you look for the registration starting with H, it's a dead giveaway. Well, I think that then is now golfers are very, very similar. Um, golfers are willing to try anything new and they will openly and willingly embrace any new technology provided their father and grandfather tried it first. <laughs> you know, I, That's I, I a good way of putting it. I believe that to be true. What was um, Bob Jones's impact on Spalding? Do we know like from a sales standpoint, from a, you know, how did he help change Spalding? I imagine it was a, a big boom for them. Well, yeah, this is the again the biggest name in sports. Uh, he starts the Masters and is associated with that. Uh, Spalding again at that time still, and this was the Great Depression, but they're re- rerunning a proven formula by having 
its biggest stars do barnstorming tours across the country. In 31, 32, was it Horton Smith, Lawson Little, Jimmy Thompson toured the country, going to um, uh, you know colleges and things like that to, to promote the game, to promote Spalding equipment. They did it again in 37, 38, in front of 300,000 people in total. So all, all that kind of stuff played a part. Uh, but Bobby Jones would deal with um, he, he lots of letters that are out there from Bobby Jones to club professionals uh, touting the Spalding game, the Spalding product line and the Spalding, you know, the relationship. So, you know, when you get it, you're a club pro, you get a letter from Bobby Jones, you pay attention. Right. <laughs> you know, so all those things, you know, part of the promotion was there. And again, part of the uh, he, Bobby Jones is everything I've read about Bobby Jones is he did not do things just for the money. If he was going to take your money, you were going to get his best. And uh, so he he really helped move the ball down downfield for Spalding throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s and really until up until his death. Uh, Spalding in general, I think, sold 15 different sets with with Bobby Jones name on them, uh, sold over two million between 1931 and 1973, which was two years after he died. Yeah, it's so, fascinating. Uh, he was it was a he, he was he was Spalding golf for that. For yeah, that. one of my favorite uh, characters from golf history that never seems to get enough credit uh, is, a, is a gentleman by the name of J. Victor East. Uh, yes. He was kind of the man behind Bobby Jones' line for Spalding, and he assisted Bobby Jones with his equipment during Jones's prime as an amateur. This is before even Spalding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there are a couple stories that go with Jay Victor East that I'd like to share, but Jay Victor East replaced uh, Bobby Jones's famous driver, which he called Jeannie Deans. He had a crack in it, and he, he I believe he made five exact duplicates that ended up using to win the Grand Slam. Uh, he also measured Jones's famous Condi Forged putter, uh, which was called, oh, I'm sorry, which he received from Stuart Maiden's brother uh, that was called Calamity Jane. And he found out why rolling balls on a billiard table that it actually had become concave over the years yep. because Bob Jones had had a plethora of center strikes over the years and had worn down the actual steel. So East ended up making several exact copies of those copies. He ended up winning the Grand Slam in 1930 with one of J. Victor East's uh, duplicates. On top of all this, um, you know, as a history junkie, Bob Jones winning the Grand Slam, most people may know this, may not, but that set that he used is actually on the wall in Augusta National's clubhouse, the clubs Bobby Jones used to win the Grand Slam. And of those clubs, there are two or three clubs that were pre-Spalding models made by J. Victor East. So one wonders, I don't know this. I don't know if you do. I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Did J. Victor East work for Spalding and convince Bob Jones to come over? Or did Bob Jones bring J. Victor East into Spalding as this amazing innovator who helped him with flanges, who helped him with, you know, that transition from hickory to steel? To me, one of the great equipment savants that have added to our game and yet very few know his name. Interesting. I, I think he might have been with Spalding first. I think he might be right. I think he might have been with Spalding first. I came across a letter, uh, a form. It had to have been a form letter from Bobby Jones, and the recipient was J. Victor East, touting the uh, the, the benefits of Spalding club fitting and the service to golf professionals. And you read this thing, and it's like I'm writing it. I'd be writing it to someone I barely know. It, it reads like a form letter, but it's 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 
it sent a J Victor East, which again, it had to be, all right, yeah, just crank these things out and get them out. <laughs> That's right. Fire, you know? <laughs> That's right. So the innovations with Spalding didn't end with the Bobby Jones line. Can you share some of the innovations that followed, uh, some of which perhaps were banned? Mm. Well, uh, one innovation that actually goes back to 1934 was the Crow Flight golf ball. That was kind of interesting. It was the first golf ball with a I don't know if it's the first golf ball with a liquid center, but it was one of the first with a liquid center. And it solved a really big problem. Uh, you had two different types of golf balls back then. You had, like you do now, really, you've got, you had your, your soft cover golf balls that were wound and the internal core pressure was about 1,500 to 1,600 PSI. And those were the better players. Those things flew like By the way, that's only information you can get from somebody from my golf spy. Nobody else knows that. <laughs> <laughs> right so they, they had but it was a soft cover that was molded over and the problem with a soft cover is back then you could cut them pretty easily they weren't terribly durable they were also making a tough cover golf ball which uh, the, uh, the which kind of vulcanized the cover was kind of vulcanized so it was high temperature over a longer period of time to make it tougher and harder to harder to to to, to scuff up or crack the problem was it flew about seven to 10 yards shorter. What it, it, Everybody that, wants a shorter ball. Right. <laughs> That's what we're all looking for. This I, ball I, goes I, shorter. You can just see the advertisement. I say to myself pretty much every time I tee off, says, you know, I hit the ball just too damn too, far. Too know? far. Let's take it down a notch. <laughs> right. Although but, right uh, now the USG is hearing this and they're like, okay, where, what ball was that? Find that crow flight. Get on there. Um, to kind of make the best of both worlds what they did was they figured out how to make the crow make the ball with the tough cover but to bring back that internal psi they, they figured out they take a little hypodermic needle and inject about one six hundredth of an ounce of fluid into the center and it would react with the with the windings and everything and it would bring back that internal PSI to about 1,500 to 1,600 PSI, and now you had a tough cover ball that would fly like the soft cover ball. So it was, it was kind of a neat solution to, to kind of a, a tricky problem. Now, it, what's weird is at the same time, you, you know, or within a few years, I, I found an advertisement for the Hagen ball. Uh, it was called the Hagen honey. It had honey in the core. I did not know it had honey in it. I had because he had the honey irons. I know the honey irons did not have honey in them. I, that I know for sure. But I did not know that they had honey inside the golf ball. It was a, it, apparently, it was a sweet ball. Huh. Yeah. So there gonna, I'm, I'm, there I'm, it is. He's I'm done, folks. Da, da, da. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, lots of other, you know, in the 50s and 60s, they had, uh, again, the, they, they, they were making different kinds of grooves on their wedges. Um, they had the Synchrodyne irons. The Synchrodyne irons came out in 1953, which is a cool name. But what they did with the Synchrodyne irons is uh, the center of gravity was kind of coordinated throughout the set. So from woods to irons to wedges, it was kind of a nice progressive center of gravity. And it was designed for better feel uh, and consistent feel. All was done in the name of consistency. And I, I came across one of the ads that, uh, that, they, that they had for the Synchrodyne irons. And it said, in our testing... Hundreds of golfers of a wide variety of handicaps lowered their handicap by one third or more. Now, my golf spy would have been all over that. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, we're going to test this. Around in 1953, and they saw that. They said, "Okay, we got to test this." Right, right. 
so that's 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 one of that's that's kind of what my golf spine is all about. We take all right. Let's see. Let's let's separate the BS from what's real here. So. And it all started from Spalding, my golf spy. That exactly. claim. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, they had uh, things like the di- uh, the dynamiter. I don't know if it's dynamiter or diameter or whatever. I can't you know I can't pronounce it. But they had the fish scale looking uh, grooves on the wedges or waterfall looking, which kind of look kind of freaky. Uh, uh, the spa, they, they also in the 50s were doing a copper undercoating on their forged irons, which Mizuno is doing right now to, to it just softens the feel. You know? Yeah. I mean, really just ahead of things. Yeah. Great innovation though. And so, yeah, from 1950s to 1980s in Spalding, there's a lot going on, right? Can you walk us through the innovations? And then of course, perhaps even bigger, the ownership moves. Oh gosh. You know what? What? It's, it's, I mean, that's a crazy time in Spalding's history And, and people, you need to understand, um, from the 1950s, 1980s, Spalding is a ginormous name in golf. I like. I know you don't think of it as you know as a, a brand leader now, but you had U.S. presidents playing Spalding. Uh, mm-hmm. Dwight Eisenhower played Spaldings. Um, you know some of the best players played Spaldings at this time. So, you know you have to get in that mindset when you hear this story kind of unfold and where we're going. In, in I, I mean, exactly, they were they were constantly coming out with new and interesting stuff and innovative stuff. The Spalding dot golf ball was one of the great golf balls of the fifties and fifties, sixties, and into the seventies. Um, in the, in the 1960s, they came out with the Spalding executive line of balls and clubs. My very first set of real big boy golf clubs were Spalding executives. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the real funky ones. It was 1982 and they were really kind of funky looking, but that was my first set of big boy clubs. Uh, 68, they came out with the unicorn, which was a one piece golf ball. Totally solid golf ball uh, for performance. Uh, in in '68, Ram came out with the first uh, golf ball with a Serlin cover. Serlin was that that ionomer resin that was made by Dupont, and that they were the first to put it on a golf ball. But in '71, Spalding took it a step and a half further by coming out with the Top Flight, the first Top Flight golf ball. And again, uh, this isn't Top Flight from Walmart. Right. This is Top Flight, like you know, essentially tour model, if you will. Exactly. Well, you could go back into the 50s and iron, you know, Spalding irons would have Spalding on the sole, but in the cavity or in the bat or in the muscle, it would be a top flight iron. So top Spalding top flight was kind of a, 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 they were, they were, they were the same thing. They were, it was part of the name. It's a Spalding top flight iron. Uh, and in the 60s, they, they had some great forged blades. Uh, this, the, the bird on the, the Spalding elite, uh, top flight elite bird, uh, bird on ball insignia irons. Uh, Mo Norman's favorite clubs uh, were those, and uh, our, uh, on, on my golf spy, our own forum resident vintage club expert, a guy who goes by the handle Big Stew. I don't know his real name, but he's known as Big Stew. Um, says that they are the third most beautiful forged irons ever made. And which ones were these? Uh, the the Bird on Ball Spalding Elites. And that's what Mo used. It's what Mo used. Yeah. Wow. According to Big Stew, most beautiful forged blades ever made. Third most beautiful board forged blades ever made. Uh, knowing Stu McGregor, some McGregor models are going to be one and two because he's a McGregor guy. Yeah. But it's fascinating. I mean, when you think of top flight, you really don't think, I mean, in, nowadays it's a premium golf clubs, premium golf balls, but that clearly wasn't always the case. Oh, right. Yeah. It's, I mean, top flight was, was there, was their co-brand. It was Spalding top flight, Spalding top flight, Spalding top flight. Now for, for all those years. Now, 
you want to know about as we were going through the decades when it came to ownership changes. Yes, please. Uh, 1958, Spalding is acquired or a company called the, the Pyramid Rubber Company starts buying up shares of Spalding. Now, in 58, a lot of weird stuff's happening in the golf business anyway. McGregor is sold to AMF, all right? And uh, uh, two years later, 1960, Hogan gets sold to Brunswick. Okay, so... A lot of movement, yeah. A lot of movement. These big companies are changing hands, all right? 1970, Wilson gets sold to Pepsi, all right? So a lot of weird things are happening this time. Throughout, you know, for the next several years, Pyramid's buying up shares, by 1964, they wind up acquiring uh, uh, all of Spalding and then merging with two other companies. Uh, one made mufflers and, uh, for, for cars, and I'm not sure what the other company made, but uh, Pyramid changed its name to Evenflow. Uh, and Evenflow is known for selling baby bottles and infant products. So perfect, you know, for a company that... that Synergy. That, yeah, for a company that once had a you know knitting machines, rifles, and egg beaters, this makes perfect sense, right? Uh, so just a you can't shake your past. Uh, they were renamed the Questor Company, and Questor owned Spalding and Evenflow uh, until 1984. 1984, they sold Spalding and Evenflow. Questor sold Spalding and Evenflow to the Cisneros brothers from Venezuela. The Cisneros brothers were the second generation of the Cisneros company, which started in Venezuela in like 1929, selling, uh, they were, they were a, a small package shipping company in Venezuela. Uh, they eventually got into everything from ice cream and soft drinks and retail and you name it. They became a huge operation. They, uh, they, li- they were the licensee to sell Coca-Cola in Venezuela. They were the Sears Roebuck company in Venezuela. They, they, had a had a had a knack for making an awful lot of money. They bought Spalding and Evenflow, set up corporation headquarters in Tampa, but the the, the facility in in the factory in Chicopee still stayed in business. That was that was where everything was made. So they kept the operation going all through all through uh, the the eighties and into the nineties. Nineteen ninety six rolls around. Big thing happens in nineteen ninety six. A Kushnet buys Cobra. Okay, the 90s to me are the golden age of golf equipment. Uh, so many things are changing. So the technology is booming, right? You've got companies like Callaway and TaylorMade and all these other companies, Cobra among them, are coming out of nowhere with products that you must have, you know? I remember when my cousin bought his very first um, Big Bertha driver. I'd never seen anything like it. And it was like, I've got to get one. Then I saw how much they cost. And I said, I'll live with my. <laughs> That's how it goes, right? It's a must have that. until right. you have to pay for it. Exactly, exactly. Um, but the, 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 the technology is just going crazy. Companies like Spalding, companies like Wilson, companies like McGregor, the old school companies, no matter how innovative they were, the perception is something completely different. They, you know, they could be as innovative as any of the other guys, but they're not new and sexy like the Big Bertha or the bubble, the, you know, the bubble burner chef and all that other stuff. Cobra had the King Cobra. They had the oversized irons. You had Tommy Armour with the 845S. You had all these, uh, you know, Ping I2 was just huge. Uh, Hogan had the edge, you know, I mean, all these. And Spalding right. is like your dad's clubs. Exactly. They've got top flight, right? They've got top flight and they've got the rock flight golf balls. I mean, that was the original top flight ball was, you know, it earned the name rock flight, you know, 
um, so all these things are happening. In 1996, a Kushnet buys Cobra, just straight Cobra, and and uh, just a, just an equipment company for 700 million dollars. Wow, big yeah. time money then. Yeah, yeah, 700 million dollars. Later that year, Spalding is sold. The Cisneros brothers sell Spalding slash Evenflow to KKR for close to $1 billion. When I first read about the billion dollars, I said, boy, those knuckleheads really overpaid. But then when you think, put that in context of a Kushnet buying Cobra for $700 million, now you're getting, not, now you're not only getting an equipment company, you get one the biggest ball manufacturer on the planet, one of the two, them in Titleist. You're getting um, an entire sporting goods division. And yeah, so this isn't just golf. This is all of Spalding. That's the big picture. For a billion dollars. So that billion dollar sale, really, it was it was opportunity slash danger at the, at the same time. Because that billion dollar sale, KKR was uh, is well known uh, for leverage buyouts. They were behind the $25 billion leverage buyout of RJ, RJR Nabisco in the 80s. So I don't know if you ever read. Martin no, that went well. That's yeah. The story of that. Of it. Give KKR credit. They know how to make money. They got hits. They got misses. But they generally come out ahead. Right. This was, hey, we're going to use other people's money. All right. They borrowed heavily to buy to buy, you know, to buy Spalding slash Evenflow. So it's all other people's money. And we think we can turn this thing. We can turn this thing into a real big money maker, then turn around and sell it at a profit. That was the plan. The problem was the industry was just it's it's a different industry. Golf. Timing is everything, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's a unique industry. Um, maybe they didn't do enough of their homework. I've had a couple sources tell me they really didn't think you know uh, KKR did their due diligence on the market, not so much on Spalding, but on the market and where it was going, and then Spalding's place in the market, and that you know that ultimately led to the demise of the company because and they picked up did they pick up ben hogan the ben hogan company at that same time about a year later yeah they, they bought a tonic with the atonic company uh, at that time you know shoes and apparel and then a year, a year later they bought ben hogan from bill goodwin who bought it from ben hogan uh or no he didn't buy it from ben hogan he bought it from uh a cosmos cosmo world uh, of Japan, that uh, Hogan's ownership then, and um, you know Goodwin almost killed the comp- killed Hogan completely because he moved it out of Fort Worth, he moved it in Virginia, and just he lost about a hundred million dollars in three years on it. So they got it kind of a bargain. Now think about what they did here. They've got Spalding golf balls, top flight golf equipment, Hogan Ben Hogan golf equipment, plus a tonic shoes and apparel. What company does that sound like? A Kushnet, Footjoy, Titleist, yeah. Exactly. They're trying to put together a portfolio that's very, very similar to what a Kushnet is doing. Because a Kushnet, one of the biggest companies in golf at that time. So they're trying to kind of spread it out and have, uh, you know, full force. And the, the, plan, the plan, I think, was kind of sound, actually. Because um, what they were going to do was the Spalding brand name was going to be recreational department store equipment. All right. It was going to be sold at mass mark, mass merchandisers. Uh, real simple stuff. Top Flight and Strata, which the Strata golf ball was a huge innovation. We'll talk about that in a second. Top Flight Strata was going to be the investment cast game improvement offering 
that they would sell in, you know, off course golf retailers and in pro shops. And then the Ben Hogan line would be the ultra premium forged lineup that they'd sell in pro shops exclusively for better players. So you got a multi-channel, multi-brand kind of setup going here, which if the if the the brands are sufficiently differentiated, can work. A problem was Spalding and Top Flight, I don't think was differentiated enough. They had a plan to differentiate them, but I think in the consumer's mind, they weren't differentiated enough. And once you are associated with the super, uh, the the department store box set brand, you can't get away. From it's that. A, it's a, impossible, right? It's impossible. It's your dad's clubs that are sold in right over here. There's no innovation, even though there was. But one 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 of the best stories you tell from your article is the story of uh, the top flight ball system C. Oh boy! I mean, do you, I don't know how many people know this story, but it's a doozy, and it's a it, it's a massive swing and a miss. Is this this is under KKR? Is that correct? Right. Well, I, I, I don't know how far in advance it was in 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 yeah. development. But well, marketing is really what matters here, right? Exactly. Exactly. This was 1998. Uh, they uh, at the PGA show. Uh, top Flight comes out with the Top Light System C golf ball and the top light top flight system t golf ball and the the, the 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 they show this at the pga show and the pitch is the system c that's a golf ball that's designed for to be you know for for optimized performance with the best sell one of the two best selling drivers in the in the game the great the callaway great big bertha that's why it's called system c and they say optimize on the box optimize for performance with the great callaway great big bertha. Oh. The system T is designed to be optimized for performance with the tailor-made bubble TI, which was the other best-selling golf, golf driver uh, in the market. And um, what what could go wrong? What could go wrong? What could go wrong? You print you print Callaway on your ball box and tailor-made for the other one. It's worse. They had a picture of the driver. <laughs> you and, and Spalding sells drivers at this point in time. Well, sort allegedly, yes. Yeah, <laughs> they, they never <laughs> didn't did. sell a lot of them. Right, they, but they sold them. Could get into the driver or the Metalwood game, but they came oh. up with this, this idea. And you just imagine being a Callaway guy walking, you know, just minding your own business, bopping through the PGA show, and you go to the Spalding booth and you go, "What the, you know?" Yeah, a hundred percent. What? Wait a minute. Are, are they really doing this? Think of the message it sends. It sends a message that hey, we can make golf balls, but we really don't have any confidence whatsoever in our golf equipment. <laughs> That's right. It's what it says. It's yeah. We have to use Callaway's golf equipment to sell our golf balls. Um, here's the funny thing. It's not, it's kind of almost, based, it, it, it kind of follows the fundamentals of modern ball fitting if you think about it. Sure. Yeah. Not a horrible idea. But. but to do it is a horrible idea. But, it's, but you it's don't cool. like literally promote this ball is made for another company's driver. Right, right. I mean, wow. if, if you had like a low launch, low spin driver, all right, ideally to match a ball to that, you'd want a ball that's a little higher launch and a little higher spin to get the most to get the most performance out of it, right? To stay keep it up in the air. By the same token, if you had a high launch, high spin driver, you'd want a lower launch, lower spinning ball again to not overdo the uh, not overcook the spin. So it's 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 fundamentally sound. It's just freaking stupid. Yeah. Know? And what what happened there? What was the end result? Well, Callaway and TaylorMade saw this at the PGA show in January. Probably by mid-February, the lawyers got involved. 100%, and, yeah. And lawsuits were filed. And ultimately, what they did was they just pulled it back. 
you know, they, they, I don't know how many they actually sold, how many actually went to market. I've seen them on eBay, you know. So I, I mean, do they I, sell for a lot? Because now I kind of want to, uh, you know, set. That's amazing. They, yeah, they didn't see. I, I, I can't remember the pricing, but I may have to go get some. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's such an unusual story. It's got to be in my golfers here, little yeah. box of those. So, it, 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 and it, what it turned out it was embarrassing. It wasn't. Yeah. Fatal. It wasn't fatal, but boy, it didn't help the brand any. No, and and you already have all these pitfalls. You're carrying all this debt. Your brand is a bit stale, and then you take a massive swing and a miss on something everybody's legal department might have said, "Hey guys, uh, this isn't a good idea." Right, and, and, and <laughs> you know the the, the 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 leadership at Spalding said, "No, we we we're pretty confident in our position here. We checked it out with our legal department, and we put a disclaimer on the box. It's on the box, oh. small letters in the corner it says Callaway is not involved in the the development or the the sale of this product." Oh Real my gosh! Right, so yeah, John. Yeah, go ahead. Um, no, it, it was just a mistake. It was, it, again, not fatal, but embarrassing, especially when you had the Strata golf ball. Exactly. So take us game. take us home from here. Can you walk us through the timeline of debt, pitfalls, minor success stories, and finally the death of a 100-year-old golf brand name? Well, the, the, the success stories are interesting. I mean, the Strata, of course, was a, the first multi-layer solid core golf ball used on tour. And it was a it was a it was a legitimate game changer, a legitimate game changer, and it had it got extensive play on tour. Mark O'Mara won the '98 Masters and '98 Open Championship with that ball. And interesting story about a year later, uh, before you know, prior to the I think it was prior to the '99 Masters, he's playing a practice round with Tiger, as they were buddies at the time. And Tiger says, "How do you get your pitch shots to to check up like that? How do you get so much spin on your on your pitch shots?" And O'Mara starts, you know, I'm, I'm going to mess with the kid a little bit here. You know, I said, just watch my technique. Maybe you'll pick it up as time goes on, you know, as we play. So he's hitting these shots, and Tiger's like, how do you do that? How do you do that? Finally, Tiger winds up hitting a couple of O'Mara's balls. And after his first or second shot, he kind of stops, looks at him, looks at O'Mara, says, it's not you, it's the ball. And O'Mara says, yeah, you got, you got me, yeah. It's that ball had had minimal, you know, lessens the, the impact of the spin off the tee, but it spun like crazy around the green. Uh, so again, the, the precursor of the modern ball. Yeah. Precursor, precursor of the modern ball. Almost immediately, Tiger goes to work with Nike and gets their engineers to develop the same ball. And that wound up being the Nike Tour Accuracy, which was actually made by Bridgestone, but designed by Nike. Uh, he goes completely nuts in 2000, winning... You know, that was the ball. He, he put that ball in play at the U.S. Open, which he won by, what, 37 strokes? Yeah, I actually have in my corner over here, I have one of his practice balls. It really? just says TW. Uh, okay. And that's the yeah the, the Nike accuracy ball. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, it's, it's very cool. And, uh, and why the Nike Tour accuracy didn't take the world by storm is going to be another interesting story to look into. Right. Later that year, Titleist comes out with the Pro V1 and... Titleist being then as now was the number one ball on tour, just the tour adopted it and, and, and away we go. But that was, that was, that all had its start with the strata. Now, as we go through the, through the nineties, you know, Hogan is being integrated. Spalding top flight has a pretty impressive tour staff throughout the nineties. Yeah. Right. All playing top flight Spalding stuff, right? Exactly. You got, you got Greg Norman, you've got Nick Price, you've got, uh, when Hogan comes into the, into the fold, they got Hal Sutton, they got Bernard Longer. Payne Stewart. Uh, Payne Stewart, of course, which just didn't never, work out. Didn't work out. <laughs> we covered that in a podcast on his life. Right, that I, was I, horrible. I, that, that was a great podcast too. Yeah, right? thank you. 
It was put him into a put, you know take a guy, take a field player who plays forged oh, and ball, oh. balls you know forged with no offset, ballada balls, and then give him an investment cast wicked high offset you know game improvement club and a two piece ball again. What could go? What wrong? could go wrong? You know, the poor guy. I mean, he just couldn't. He had no idea where the ball was coming off the face, and uh, it, it it just. And he was making. Un- he said himself in a couple of interviews. He he made un uh, you know subconscious swing changes to try to get his flight down. He didn't realize the flight was going up because of the combination of club and ball. And um, yeah, he went from. He, if he didn't, if he hadn't won the eighty nine PGA, he would have lost his tour card. Yeah, so, and we don't have any of the history that followed, right? Exactly. All exactly. we know of Payne Stewart. Up until that point, was maybe he was still a prick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's before Payne Stewart became, you know, this great guy. He reinvents himself, probably maybe through some of the humility he faced going to Spalding and Top Flight. Oddly enough, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that podcast made me. I bought that book because I really do want. To it's a great that. book, isn't it? Yeah, Kevin was amazing on that podcast. So, so how did the debt come into play? So. Let's talk about the demise there. So we're, we're kind of on a gradual slope down in probably public interest. Is that fair to say? Uh, it's, it's still strong. You have a tour presence. You have an amazing amount of debt hanging over the company. Right. And understand where the dynamics of the industry were at that point. TaylorMade is coming on big time. They've just been acquired by Adidas. So there's a lot of money there, a lot of innovation. And TaylorMade is about ready to change the industry in how we consume golf equipment. They're getting primed for that. Callaway is hitting a billion dollars. I mean, they're just huge as they are now, but they were they were a behemoth. Cobra is innovative. It's new. It's unique. It's different. So you've got all this cool stuff going on. And then you've got the old guard, Wilson, McGregor, Top Flight, you know, Spalding, just watching in, in the minds of the consumers. Again, it doesn't matter what cool stuff they come. No, up, you're right. What cool things they do. If you're not viewed as innovative, you're not innovative. It yeah. Matter. If you're not growing, you're dying. That's the exactly. old saying. Exactly. And and when the competitor paints you, when you get painted with the competitor's brush, you're done. Yeah. I mean, listen, the, you know, the golf ball where you're marketing basically a driver for Callaway and TaylorMade is not helping you make your case. No, not not at all. And and Spalding at this time is 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 neck and neck with a Kushnet Titleist in terms of ball market share. Right. That's the crazy thing. Is like they they're were, right there. They're one and two, back and forth. 26, 27 million dozen balls a year. But uh, the difference is a Kushnet has the lead in the premium golf ball category. They are aggressively protecting the tour count. Spalding is taking purchase orders for 18 packs from Walmart. So it's a second tier company. They're being viewed as a second tier company. Uh, Spalding actually very much embraced, you know, sporting goods and general retail. And they were viewed as a second tier company. The Spalding executive is a perfect example. Uh, Spalding decided to sell that in a big way to Herman's world of sporting goods was their very first foray into general sporting goods. Uh, And, from there on, it's a slippery slope. You're, when you're viewed as a... As yeah. A, I'll give you an example. One of my favorite stories of branding uh, is Pabst Blue Ribbon. So Pabst Blue Ribbon, when it was out, I mean, this is night, I think it was 1970s, maybe 1980s. It was considered a premium beer. And the company was acquired by, I, I'm going to forget the name of the group, but they acquired it and they said, listen, if we lower the price of the beer, 
we will sell more. So they lowered the price of Pabst Blue Ribbon, and then all of a sudden, it wasn't a premium brand anymore. It became the bargain buy. And people Mm -hmm. started to believe that they changed the formula of the beer, that it tastes different because it was cheaper. And all of a sudden, it went from the highest of orders of beers. Like By the way, if you don't know this, folks at home, Nike's first name was Blue Ribbon Sports because Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman got drunk one night coming up with Nike. And they named it after this premium beer. And if you look at, an, uh, well, I think there's even Nike running shoes. If you flip them upside down, you'll sometimes see BRS 2000 rubber. That's Blue Ribbon Sports named after Paps Blue Ribbon, who then dropped their price, became a cheap brand, and lost all hope of turning it around and become a premium of beer because they dropped their price. And that's essentially the story of Spalding, too. Right. I mean, one of the things, it's a business truism. You cannot cut your price and make it up in volume. It sounds nice. Sounds great. It's absolute BS. It just doesn't work. And you change the the brand perception. So let me ask you this. I mean, in your opinion, what kills Spalding? You know, it's this heavyweight. Is it the heavyweight debt or is it the lack of enthusiasm against surging rivals, TaylorMade, Callaway, et cetera? Or maybe it's a combination. It's a combination. I think part two made part one untenable of your, yeah. of your point. It, it, if, they were, if they were able to deal with the, the, the rising competition, they maybe had, would have been able to deal with the debt, but not likely. I mean, they were in a negative equity situation in the early 2000s. Do we know how bad it was? It was pretty bad. They, their, debt, their, their, their debt was approaching 500 to 600 million dollars in that time frame and sales were dwindling because of this competition so you know 300 400 million dollars in sales does not put a dent in 600 million dollars worth of worth of debt they were in a negative equity situation at one point where they owed more than the company was worth they had to constantly try to negotiate with creditors to skip interest payments uh, one third of the debt was to bondholders two thirds of the debt was to, to banks it reached a point, and they were trying, man. I give I give KKR credit. They were really trying. They they launched a seventeen million dollar ad campaign for Strata and Hogan in two thousand one, two thousand three. They start, which was the, the the year it all unfolded. But two thousand three, they started off, they started off with a you know going gangbusters at the PGA show. Their plan was to turn Hogan, it's the Hogan brand itself, into a two hundred million dollar company. Sales were about 50 million. So they came out with the Apex 50 uh, blades to celebrate the 50th anniversary. They came out with the Riviera and Carnoustie wedges. That Riviera wedge remains my favorite wedge to this day. Um, they had uh, they went they came out with the Apex Tour golf ball, which is really a reconditioned Strata. All right. Um, and then Bettinardi, they signed up Bob Bettinardi to create you know, Hogan by Bettinardi putters. So they were they were really going hog wild here, and things actually were were going pretty well. Uh, Furyk wins the 2003 U.S. Open with a Strata Tour Ace golf ball, their newest golf ball, and a Baby Ben putter. You know, so they're they're things on that level are going rather well, and they still have sales. Problem is, they can no longer put off the creditors. They were they could not they could no longer pull off the creditors, and the creditors had to reach a decision. You know. The, KKR was trying to actually sell Spalding as early as 2000, but they were so upside down. The debt, yeah, the debt kills that. Yeah, we're going to sell you this company, but you got to take the debt. And say you're Callaway, and you're thinking, hmm, I'm going to buy this company, but I got to assume all this debt. And really, the only thing I want is that ball plant and the patents. 
I think I'll wait this one. <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, I think I'll wait and see what happens, you know. And it turned out that that's kind of where it went. Now, 2003, April of 2003, uh, KKR finally cuts cuts bait with Evenflow. No, I'm sorry. Evenflow was sold a few years earlier. In two, April of 2003, KKR actually sells Spalding. Wow. For $65 million. Basically, everything oh. that isn't golf. Everything oh. that is not golf they sell off to Russell Athletic. Right. Still owns the brand name today. Wow. So $65 million. They sell the Spalding brand name. Uh, What's left is reorganized. And they they bought it for a billion. Right. They sold it for $65 million. They sold the Spalding name. Right. Oh, I mean, but yeah. Everything that's not golf, right? Roughly, roughly 25%. They were about 75% golf, 25% everything else at that time. Wow. I mean, that's a big transition since the 1890s. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what was remaining was renamed and rechristened Top Flight Golf. Okay. And again, that name was still there. I mean, you've ever seen, you've seen Happy Gilmore, obviously. Top Flight is everywhere in terms of product placement from, from Lee Trevino wearing a Strata hat and a golf, you know, the Top Flight hat going like this whenever he sees, <laughs> right. he sees Happy Gilmore to the signs everywhere. I mean, they were, they were, they were aggressive in their marketing. But uh, so 2003, April of 2003, everything's rebranded Top Flight. And now they start working with the creditors. Hey, you got to give us a break here. We got to be able to work with you. And the creditors at this point are trying to say, do we take pennies on the dollar or is it to in our interest to just say nothing and write this off once they decided to take nothing and write it off done and what what time are we looking at there that was by september by september of 2003 of 2003 so furick wins the u.s open in the same year the demise of top flight and spalding within two months two months so furick wins in 2003 by September, August, September 2003, top flights in Chapter 11. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it, it, it wasn't demand. It wasn't performance. You know, sales had something to do with it, but it wasn't. Companies go out of business, not generally not because they run out of sales. It's because they run out of cash. And this was a perfect example. They ran out of cash. Can you directly attribute that to KKR picking that up with so much debt? Is there a direct line or is there oh, yeah. that multiple? Was a leverage buyout. Yeah. It was a leverage buyout. And that's, that was what KKR did. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, right? And, you know, for the big picture of KKR, you got wins, wins, wins. You got losses, losses, losses. As long as the wins outweigh the losses, you're a billion-dollar company. Yeah. So it's it's actually fair to say that Spalding was bought for a billion and sold for $65 because everything else got shot down. <laughs> right, right. And, when it, and interestingly, when it went into bankruptcy, um, I think it's called Section 363, a Section 363 sale under uh, Chapter 11. The company can be sold without any debt. So that's what Callaway did. They, had, they, uh, they, they went into a bidding situation. Uh, the first bid was $125 million. And then TaylorMade jumped in, and they had thirty rounds of bidding. Uh, Nike and Akushnet were kind of watching on the on the sidelines to see what would happen, but they never did jump in with the bid. Finally, uh, what was left was awarded to Callaway for about one hundred and seventy four million. Uh, one of the one of the things that tipped the scales in Callaway's favor was they 
they they agreed to keep the plant in Chicopee open and keep all those people employed, which is really what they wanted. They wanted the plant, which was a highly efficient, low cost ball production facility, and they wanted the patents. Callaway had jumped into the the golf ball business uh, in 2000. Their plant in California was tapped out at like they could only make maybe six million dozen a year, and they never made any money doing it. Uh, now. <laughs> they, they they own the second you know they, they they own what is arguably the biggest or second biggest golf ball plant in the world. And do they start, still operate out of that plant? Yes, they do. They yes. do. And That's so, where, what is Spalding Top Flight today in the golf industry? Do it, like Top Flight, you can still buy it. I think Walmart, maybe some other discount stores. Like who who's running with that brand now? In 2012, Callaway owned the brand until 2012 when they sold it to Dick's Sporting Goods. Oh, okay. For about $25 million. So Dick's owns the top flight brand now. Spalding, the Spalding brand is still owned by Russell Athletic. Now you can buy Spalding golf balls. You go to like Rock Bottom Golf. Yeah, yeah. You can buy Spalding branded golf balls. Whether it's just they find some cheap knockoff balls. Yeah, so it's not a true Spalding. It's just they're printing the name on it. Exactly, exactly. And same thing with Top Flight. Now, Top Flight actually did come out with some pretty interesting golf balls a few years back. Um, you know, Dix is actually, actually from a golf ball brand. They're focusing on the MaxFly brand right now. And sure. Want to get, Another get story. Really, <laughs> right. You want to get some really good golf balls at a good price. Those Mac, the new MaxFly tours are actually very, very good golf really? balls. Really? That's good to know. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's what – so, so uh, uh, Dix owns Top Flight. The Hogan brand, actually, Hogan gets lost in this a little bit, um, but it actually, that was, you know, people say, well, they, you know, Callaway had no interest in Hogan. I kind of disagree with that a little bit because that put Callaway in the premium iron category as well. You know, the forged premium iron category. They weren't in that category before. So they had the Hogan brand and they, they came out with some pretty interesting irons under the Callaway name. I, I just bought a set of FTX irons from 2003, 2004, and they're, they're going in the bag and they're not coming out anymore. Love it. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so many stories, aren't there, John? I mean, we're going to do this series of, of podcasts together, but there's a lot of rise and demise. I mean, the Hogan, it's like rise, demise, rebirth yeah, and of Hogan brand, right? And then demise again. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's that's, unbelievable. Uh, Scott White told me uh, that uh, Hogan's got up off the map more times than Rocky Balboa. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's like the Mike Tyson quote, like you don't know how tough you are until you get punched in the face. Exactly, exactly. But uh, so, yeah, with Spalding, that was it. It was debt. It was it was it was debt. It was again, it was just it, it, from KKR standpoint, it was a swing and a miss, you know? It yeah. Was, and they had so many different brands, so many different companies. It's is KKR still around. Do we know that? Oh gosh, it's huge. Absolutely yeah. Huge. Absolutely. Don't huge. take this out on us, KKR. We're just telling the story. We forgive you. Exactly. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, 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 they're very, very good at making money. This yeah. one didn't work out. They had yeah. others that didn't work out too. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people wound up losing their jobs as a result of it, which is, which is, you know, the, 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 the human, the human part, but it's, you know, it, what, did, what did they say? It's not personal. It's just business. Unfortunately. Well, as we sum this up, we, we often assume that the current Titans of the golf industry will be around forever, but golf history tells us a different story. What lessons can the modern leaders in golf equipment take from Spalding's disappearance? Boy, that's a good question. I, I think one thing to, that, that we as consumers need to understand is that just because a company gets sold doesn't mean it's the end. You know, because TaylorMade... Happens all the time. <laughs> TaylorMade's been sold twice in the last few years. 
Uh, and they're in better shape now than they were when Adidas owned them. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were there was a moment there where I thought TaylorMade was going to disappear. Yes. I mean, yeah, their debt of, of, you know, basically recreating the driver every year set a standard for all of golf companies to follow to their own detriment. Right. And you and when you, when you follow the leader like that, if the leader's jumping off a cliff, do you follow him too? You know? And a lot of companies did. <laughs> but, you know, resiliency is, is an amazing thing. I, I think the lesson to be learned is you've got to, once you decide who you are, you've got to remain who you are, even though you have ownership changes um, and leadership changes. If you have a company like Wilson for years was going through what I call a whack-a-mole management style, where, you know, uh, someone would come up as president, they'd be president for a year and then they'd get whacked and someone else would come in and, and everybody's new guy, new management team comes in and says, hey, we're going to do things our way because that last guy. Was yeah. New right. management, new direction every single time. Exactly. And you just lose your you, you forget what you stand for. And you've got to, in, in any business, you've got to stand for something. You've got to be who you are and remain true to that. And I think that might be the lesson. And I think, I think you know, the, the big companies today, you know, Callaway, TaylorMade, Ping, Cobra, uh, Kushnet, they're such juggernauts now. And the status quo just doesn't want to change. And it does, and, and it does, and, and for it to change, those companies have to do something monumentally stupid. And, it, and it's like coming out with a system C golf ball. Right. Or, <laughs> or a new technology comes into play and you don't adapt fast. Right. That was and essentially Tom Stewart, right? So Tom Stewart made hickory shafted clubs and, in my opinion, did not transfer fast enough to the new steel shafts. You can very, find very few uh, steel shafted Tom Stewart clubs. And so you just assume that this is the way we do things. And you're not able to make that jump. It's it's really amazing. I, I, I like I said, I find this a fascinating topic, and I look forward to our future discussions on the rise and demise of these companies because in their day, they are much like what we think of the modern leaders today. You know, you don't imagine Callaway or Titleist or you know Kushnet, I should say, uh, or TaylorMade disappearing from the face of the earth. But history tells us that. It's very possible. You just never know. It's the decisions you make can haunt you a decade later. The thing is, you as as a company, you've got to remember what business you're in. Now, you're either in the in the in golf, you're either in the business of innovating and developing golf clubs that people will want to buy or you're in the business of trying to sell the golf equipment that you make. And there's a big there's a big There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, John, I look forward to, I mean, this is a great one, but I look forward to McGregor. We have to dive into Nike. I think we have to go into Ben Hogan. I mean, there's so many different stories that come from these companies. Um, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. I learned a lot. I hope everybody else did on listening to the show. Well, thank, thank you for asking me. It was really a lot of fun and, and, and a real pleasure to have this conversation. And uh, um, yeah, I really thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, very thankful. We live in the here and now, and in the now, we take a lot of things for granted. It feels like the big four of Titleist, Callaway, TaylorMade, and Ping will be around forever. But if we can learn anything from history, it's that change is inevitable. Spalding's ultimate cause of death may have been the heavy burden of debt, but in the near future, 
we will share other stories of the demise of golfing giants who struggled to keep up with innovation, family feuds, and copyright infringement lawsuits. It seems for every golfing Goliath, there are more than a few Davids who can take them down. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. (laughs) 